Reflections on Sophocles' Antigone by Gil Bailey Narrated by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum Part 2 It's a kind of great Promethean, one would almost say Faustian vision of human greatness which comes to a sort of poignant point when death is mentioned. Everything is conquered, the whole world is is organized and conquered and civilized and tamed, save only death. There is a subtle issue that's brought forth here having to do with greatness. The issue, in a way, is are we at our greatest when we are invulnerable? Parentheses. Creon, or are we at our greatest when we are most vulnerable, parentheses, Antigone. It's a hymn to human greatness which comes to this sobering conclusion we still face death. After all this stuff we've done, we still face death. And then it trails off into a more ambiguous sense of where we go once we realize. What is our response to that? The fact that we have done all this and still face death, does it do something to us as we face life? Well, let me quote something from uh, one of the commentators who's studied this play, uh, Charles Paul Siegel. He says, this greatness, he's speaking of the greatness that's depicted in that choral ode, this greatness, as Sophocles sees it, has not reached its full measure unless it has confronted its own negation and death. This Antigone does. And this Creon does not. It's important to remember that symbolically, in a purely abstracted symbolic sense, Creon is the one who does not bury the dead, pushes death outside the city walls, so he can maintain his sense of greatness. This is in a very limited symbolic sense, but I think it's revealing. And Antigone is the one who will not do that, who will incorporate death into that whole picture and into her own life. And Creon begins to try to hang on to some sense of purpose or greatness, which has shunned the encounter with death. And Antigone faces the issue of purpose and significance in her life, including death, her own death, and symbolically the burying of her brother. So one of the things that's going to happen is that we will get an encounter between Creon and Antigone in which Antigone has, you might say, crossed over, and Creon hasn't, and they are speaking different languages. Meister Eckhart, 14th century mystic, says, uh, die before you die. Antigone has live, is living as though she's already dead. She has crossed over in some way, and she carries on a dialogue in today's material with Creon, which is very much like, and if we had time it would be an interesting study, the dialogue which Cleopatra in Shakespeare's play carries on with Proculius and Dolabella and some of the other, and Caesar, so the dialogue that, that Cleopatra carries on with the Roman mentality, after she is, in a sense, crossed over, she is in this other world 
in which death becomes, uh, well, it's not, uh, I was about to say insignificant, it's not insignificant, but it is, has been encountered, and she's gone beyond it. Addressing this increasingly rigid and tight little world of the Roman mind and Shakespeare's play and of Creon's mentality here. And when, they, when those two mentalities dialogue, it borders on comedy because they're missing each other so profoundly. Particularly the, the lesser of the two consciousnesses, that is to say Creon in this play, uh, is totally missing what Antigone is saying. You know, Ernest Becker wrote this book, Denial of Death. I, I don't know if any of you read it. It's a devastating, sort of post-Freudian, brilliant analysis of human craziness. The pitiable human condition that we're all in, really. Somehow, if we realize that we're under a, that we're on death row, life comes alive. Well, okay, so we'll get in, we'll, we'll uh, this, all these will come up again. So we start on page 136. With the sentry coming in, drag, again, he's a kind of, he said he wasn't coming back, but he comes back, and he's dragging Antigone by the arm. Uh, and he says, well, we've got her. He's real sort of flat-footed, and we've got her. Here's the woman that did the deed. We found her in the act of burying him. Where's the king? Creon, what's this? This line, what am I, what am I just in time to see, is literally, it means, what must I measure up to now? So you can see a kind of, sort of a sighing on the part of Creon, not quite not wanting to deal with it, seeing it coming in a way, and knowing he doesn't have the resources to deal with it. And then a sort of a double meaning with the sentry. My Lord, an oath's a very dangerous thing. Second thoughts may prove us liars. He's talking about his own oath when he said, I'm not coming back. But we and the audience realize the irony of that. Speaking of the oath, uh, uh, the proclamation, which now is going to force Creon into a head-to-head -head confrontation with this incredible daughter of Oedipus, who has Oedipus's qualities. So there's a lot of, by the way, there's a lot of foiling going on here, you know, the sense of somebody playing a foil to somebody else, the sentry playing a foil, the chorus playing a foil to everybody, and Ismene playing a foil to Antigone, and Creon and Antigone being foils. So I kind of, I, I discovered that was coming up, so I checked it out, I always thought it had to do, the foil thing came from fencing. It doesn't. It comes from uh, a jewelry term, and it means the little, the little uh, metal foil that's put underneath the, the, the gem to bring out its luster. It's a small point, but it's kind of interesting. So that's where the dramatic sense of somebody being the foil means it's just the that kind of uh, little metal thing put behind the gym to make it stand out. That's a small point, but I thought I'd share it. So, again, Sophocles has done something very Shakespearean, if I can say it that way. Uh, uh, there's a, quite a difference in tone between the Greek tragedies and Shakespeare uh, in many ways. The most striking being that Shakespeare mixes comedy and tragedy more readily than the Greeks do, but there is in this in this play, a mixture of it. And the century on page 137 begins very and gravely, not, no pun intended, and ends up sort of as just about as shallow as you can get. So let's take a look at it because it's an extremely important description of what he has just witnessed, namely watching 
Antigone and arresting her and bringing her back to the king. We swept off all the earth that covered the body and left it a sodden naked corpse again. Then set upon a hill on the windward side, keeping clear of the stench of him as far as we could. All of us keeping each other up to the mark with pretty sharp speaking not to be caught napping this time. So exposing the body again. Actually, you could make heavy weather out of this and we don't really have time to do it. But you notice that the, in this play, this corpse, well, let me get at it by quoting Nicholas Berdai, a Russian, sort of a Russian moral philosopher or theologian, I don't know what you, poet, maybe. He says, the moral paradox of life and of death can be expressed by a moral imperative. Treat the living as though they were dying. That's what we're talking about. We're all on death row. Treat the living as though they were dying and the dead as though they were alive. And you'll notice that's just what Antigone does. It's what the saints do. Treating the dead as though they were alive is called the communion of saints. And treating the living as though they were dying is the attitude of many of the great. I think of this, what Thomas... Sir Thomas More said to Henry VIII as he was going to the gallows, he said, the only, thing, the only difference between yourself and myself is that I'm going to die in a few minutes and you're going to die in a few years. It's not as though I'm going to die and you're not. So treat the living as though they were dying and the dead as though they were alive. Antigone treats the dead as though they were alive. And Creon begins by treating the dead as though they were dead and ends up by treating the living as though they were dead. That's called bracket creep. Spiritual bracket creep. <laughs> you see, what the irreverence towards something that seems thing-like, you know, to begin to treat life, that questionable life over there, that unburied corpse, as a thing. And what and then it begins to you know, the, the ripples start coming out and pretty soon Creon is treating every person as a thing. Everything, be, Every person becomes a player on the chessboard that he's trying, of thieves that he's trying to play. Okay, so what's happened is that they have gone back out and treated the corpse as a thing. As a corpse, not as the soul of Polynices. See, Creon sees it as a corpse, Antigone sees it as the soul of Polynices, trapped in a, in a no longer living body because the proper burial hasn't taken place. He goes on. Sentry goes on. So this went on some hours till the flaming sun was high in the top of the sky and the heat was blazing. Suddenly a storm of dust like a plague from heaven Storms are always, in a dramatic setting, uh, omen, portent. Suddenly a storm of dust like a plague from heaven swept over the ground, stripping the trees stark bare, filling the sky. You had to shut your eyes to stand against it. Notice the body is exposed. Exposure is a subtle theme here, by the way. You'll, this is that same choral ode. The chorus sings, Found out the laws of living together in cities, building him shelter against the rain and wintry weather. Shelter is one of the major symbols used in the choral ode for the civilizing force. So shelter versus exposure. 
again, you get the ripple effect. The body is exposed, then the guards are exposed. Exposure is starting to break into the walled city. That is to say, civilization is crumbling. The civilized world is beginning to crumble because of this impious act of exposing the corpse. It has a ripple effect. So, interesting that he uses this imagery here of being exposed to the elements right after that coral ode. You had to shut your eyes to stand against it. When at last it stopped, and this is so, this is the heart of it emotionally. When at last it stopped, there was the girl screaming like an angry bird when it finds its nest left empty and little ones gone. Now that is one of the most powerful images in the whole play. To, to show how powerful it is, the Creon mentality is pretty straightforward. Be Creon for a second. You think that holding civilization together is a kind of structural problem. You're a law and order type, right? got to build the city wall, we've got to lay down the laws, we've got to keep everybody behaving. That's the Creon mentality of what it means to be civilized. And he's trying to do it. The poor man is trying to do it that way, see? So don't be too... He's a fool, but he's trying to maintain civilization in his own little way. Okay, so be Creon. And you've just had a civil war, you know, you're all, the city's all but exhausted itself. And you heard that somebody's out there burying the body against your proclamation, and you know that anarchy could run wild if the king loses his authority, all of that. And there you are, already tremendously intimidated by the situation. And here comes this century, and he's going to tell you what just happened. And you start to listen to it, and he says to you, when at last it stopped, there was the girl screaming like an angry bird when it finds its nest left empty and little ones gone. Well, now, if you're sufficiently able to identify with Creon, you will realize that those words would send a shudder up your spine. It is the, it's the feminine at its deepest and most inexplicable and threatening to the little worldview that Creon's trying to maintain. The mother image here is very powerful. This is that feminine impulse that comes from down here. She, oh, screaming like an angry bird. Again, the bird image comes over and over and over again. It's in the choral ode. Birds are, according to the chorus, birds are snared. You must snare them. The civilizing is you catch these little birds and you put them in little cages. Catch them and put them in cages. And now suddenly, here's a wild one out. And poor Creon just, oh, God. He's too unconscious to, to be that directly sensible to it. But it's a tremendously powerful image. Again, jo Charles Paul Siegel says, uh, thus... It is exactly the womanly element in Antigone which Creon cannot grasp. 
he must reduce her act to terms analogous to his own in order to understand it. Where this comes from, that screaming like an angry bird who's had, uh, who's had her nest violated, Creon can't fathom this. All he knows is that it scares the pejesus out of him. But he has no idea what it is. He knows he's going to have to clamp down on it because, my God, if anything will unravel this little, nice little civilized order we have, it's that kind of stuff. It's the Dionysian element. See, this, these plays were performed as a Dionysian liturgy. So I'll just start, then we'll go on over to the next page. When at last it stopped, there was the girl screaming like an angry bird when it finds its nest left empty and little ones gone. Just like that, she screamed, seeing the body naked, crying and cursing the ones that had done it. Then she picks up the dry earth in her hands, and pouring out, a fine, pouring out of a fine bronze urn she's brought, she makes her offering three times to the dead. Again, the very ritual performance of this thing. Soon as we saw it, down we came and caught her. She wasn't at all frightened. And so we charged her with what she'd done before, and this, she admitted it. I'm glad to say. And then it becomes so goofy. Though sorry, too, in a way. It's good to save your own skin, but a pity to have to see another get into trouble whom you've no grudge against. However, I can't say I've ever valued anyone's, anyone else's life more than my own, and that's the honest truth. It is like Shakespeare, isn't it? I mean, to put this kind of shallowness in such proximity to this kind of depth takes a lot of literary courage because you can you can rob the depth part of it of its significance but i think it works here creon and the century have a lot in common uh, but creon has deluded himself and others into a uh, a manifestation of this same kind of stuff on a sort of He's wrapped it in noble-sounding phrases. Uh, they're both, in a way, they're both. What you're getting is the feminine at its deepest, and the masculine, particularly with the century, the masculine at its most shallow. By the way, it's not exclusively masculine or exclusively feminine, uh, but it, it, in the context of this play, it's being worked out in those terms. In many ways, you know the. The real, well, I don't want to get into this really, but uh, the the <clears throat> there is a kind of Freudian Jungian option here. Uh, do I maintain civilization by setting up, building a wall against that what Freud called the the mud tide, or is it a transformative process? Do you transform? Is civilization a transform? Does it flow out of a transformative process or a uh, walling process. Well, answer is obviously it comes out of a transformative process. That's not to say that at certain points in our lives we don't have to wall back some, if there's more there than we can possibly transform at any one moment. So maybe some low levees, temporary levees. Well, the superficiality of the genuine honesty of the century is important here. That is the ego position laid bare. That's the ego position laid bare. And Antigone is operating out of something that is absolutely unfathomable to the ego position. So Antigone says she doesn't uh, deny it. Creon says, uh, you dared to contravene my proclamation. And so bottom third of the page, yes, 
That order did not come from God. Justice that dwells with God's belows knows no such law. I do not think your edict strong enough to overrule the unwritten, unalterable laws of God in heaven, you being only a man. Again, remind you how important the divine decree was that all should be properly buried. Then this, these two great lines, she's speaking about the will of the gods, the laws, the unalterable laws of God in heaven. They are not of yesterday or today, but everlasting, though where they came from, none of us can tell. This is so Sophoclean. Uh, Sophocles was living in a kind of Enlightenment era in Athens. Protagoras and Pericles. There was a sense of, well, we've, we're sort of outgrowing those old gods a little bit. And uh, we have to kind of take charge ourselves here and organize ourselves and have a democracy and lay it out and, and kind of take hold of it. It's the same thing that happens over and over and over again in civilization where we begin to see, begin to think that, well, we've probably outgrown that. That was an interesting phase that human beings went through, but we've, uh, you know, we're probably growing beyond that. And Sophocles was the great voice of 5th century Athens that refused to accept that. And right here is the essence of his refusal to accept it. They are not of yesterday or today. You don't outgrow that. It's not something that is that progress or even evolution grows beyond. They are not of yesterday or today, but everlasting, though where they came from, none of us can tell. That is a magnificent statement there. You know, that this, Antigone draws her sense of purpose and significance from a mystery which she does not fully fathom. And it makes all the difference in the world. Same thing, by the way, is true of Aeneas. How flat it would be and how unconvincing if we would have an Antigone or an Aeneas or whoever who draws her conviction and her sense of purpose from a mystery, if you want to call it that, that she fully understood the real, admirable, wonderful, human, courageous part of Antigone is that she is absolutely loyal to a mystery which she knows is true, but she does not fathom it. It's still mysterious to her. It's not simply a, a thing of going out there and laying her life on the line for something that is perfectly understood. Though where they came from, none of us can tell. Well, see, what happens is the Creon, this goes back to the I, thou, I, it. Creon, if, if finally he learns his lesson, but doesn't fundamentally reorient his life, he will look back and he'll say, well, by golly, she was right, so we better amend the Constitution. Guilty of their transgression bef before God, I cannot be for any man on earth. I knew that I should have to die, of course, with or without your order. This is the, I'm going to die, it doesn't matter. <laughs> if it be soon, so much the better, living in daily torment as I do, who would not be glad to die? So much like Hamlet. I keep comparing this to Shakespeare, but 
Shakespeare and Sophocles are so close together in their sensibility. The speech towards the end of Hamlet, when he says to Horatio, Horatio says, oh, if you're not feeling well, let's postpone this duel that you're going to have with Laertes. Hamlet says, no, no, no. There's a special providence in the fall of the sparrow. If it be now, tis not to come. If it be not to come, it will be now. If it be not now, yet it will come. The readiness is all. Mm -hmm. Today, tomorrow, right now, later today, the readiness is all. Antigone's very much in that same vein. This punishment will, next page, this punishment will not be any pain. Only if I had my mother's son lie there unburied, then I could not have borne it. This I can bear. Does that seem foolish to you? Or is it you that are foolish to judge me so? That's the issue. Of course it seems foolish to you, Creon. It's always going to seem foolish to you. This, this, this world that I'm living in right now, Creon, is going to seem foolish to you. It reminds me of St. Paul saying, uh, here I am preaching Christ crucified. It's a stumbling block to the Greeks. And a, what, how does he say it? It's, a, it's folly to the Greeks and a stumbling block to the Jews or vice versa. Everybody says, here I am, you know, wasting my life running around this deserted landscape preaching Christ crucified. You know, on a scaffold. Everybody thinks I'm an idiot. Here's Antigone saying, you, uh, of course, Creon, you're going to think I'm a fool. But it may be that you're the fool. And the chorus, she shows her father's stubborn spirit, foolish not to give way when everything's against her. Good advice, huh? I'm just going to go over a lot of this text because it's so... Worthwhile saying out loud. Creon, ah, oh, but you'll see the over... Notice the control here, the sense of keeping a lid on. The over-obstinate spirit is soonest broken, as the strongest iron will snap if over-tempered in the fire to brittleness. A little halter is enough to break the wildest horse. Proud thoughts do not sit well upon subordinates. The poor man is grasping for maxims. It's all going to come back to haunting. But here, here he is. He's just heard about this. This woman is screaming like an angry bird, you know, and he's grabbing for proverbs that'll help him deal with the issue. And then the middle of the page—it's not translated uh, perfectly well by our translator. She shall not flout my orders with impunity. The real translation is more like this. I'll give you two of them. Fitz Fitzgerald translates it: "Who is the man here?" She or I, if this crime goes unpunished. That begins this great theme he's going to be playing out. Elizabeth Wyckoff translates it. I am no man and she the man instead if she can have this conquest without pain. Okay, who's wearing the pants here? Okay, there's a lot of hatred, suspicion, and really fear of the feminine. Fear of the feminine comes out later really powerfully. And then, of course, she said he's foolish. He thinks anybody who starts to think this way is crazy. Speaking of her sister, Ismini, 
Let her be fetched. She was in the house just now. I saw her hardly in her right mind either. Often the thoughts of those who plan dark deeds betray themselves before the deed is done, and so on. So he's... This is a psychological problem that guys have. It's a psychological problem. You need help. You don't understand. You disobey my proclamations, and you get stoned to death. Now, that anybody who go do it after that, they, they need some help. Antigone says, are you going to do anything but kill me? I mean, anything other than you going to torture me? No, I'm just going to kill you. Fine, we'll get it on with. Let's, let's do it. Uh, she says, then she says, at the bottom of 139, I've given my brother burial. What greater honor could I wish? All these, and then she's pointing to the chorus. That Those are the respectable, upstanding citizens of Thebes. She points to them and says, all these would say that what I did was honorable, but fear locks up their lips. And he's, see, this is the topsy-turvy world on the other side of egohood. And it's totally baffling to Ismini, but Ismini knows it's baffling. Ismini's like us, you see. Ismi, it's baffling to Ismini, but she knows that's where life is. Mm -hmm. She can't cross over, but she knows it's there. And it's totally baffling. This is great stuff on page 140. First of all, she says, fear locks up their lips to speak and act just as he likes as a king's prerogative. Creon, you are wrong. None of my subjects thinks as you do. Yes, sir, they do, but dare not tell you so. <laughs> and this, of course, to, to a suspicious mind like Creon, this is all you have. To, you know, he's the, he's the one who says, traitors and dupes, traitors and dupes. You are not only alone, but unashamed. And here's, this is great. Remember in Oedipus and Colonus, the dialogue between Antigone and Polynices, which was written 40 years after this play, but it has, there is a character consistency in Antigone. She is now going to have a dialogue with Creon, and he is not going to know what she's talking about. She's, talk, she's, she's talking from such a place, and they're having this conversation, and he's totally baffled by it. Finally, the, Totally baffled by it. <clears throat> You're not only alone, but unashamed, Antigone. There is no shame in honoring my brother. Was not his enemy who died with him your brother? And Creon sees the world in terms of enemy, friends and enemies. Friends and enemies. Antigone sees the world in terms of family. Symbolically. Yes, both were brothers. Both of the same parent. You honor one and so insult the other. It's either or. You honor one or... or you take sides, Antigone. Will you please take sides? <laughs> he that is dead will not accuse me of that. He will, if you honor him no more than the traitor. It was not a slave, but his brother that died with attacking his country while the other defended it. Even so, we have a duty to the dead. And Creon is not to give equal honor to good and bad, and this is the bottom line. Who knows? In the country of the dead, that may be the law. Reminds me of that thing of where the Sadducees or somebody tried to trap Jesus. Here's this woman, and she... Her husband died and she married his brother and he died and she married his brother and he died and married his brother and she dies 
If there is a resurrection, whose wife is she going to be? And Jesus says, you're an idiot. You're a total idiot. You know, you're applying your silly little to to the one of the great to the great mystery. And she's saying, Miss Antigone, surely, he says, it's not the divine order would not be one in which you would give equal honor to the good and the bad. Antigone says, Who knows? Friends and enemies in his head. Friends and enemies. Sorry. An enemy can't be a friend even when dead. My way is to share my love, not share my hate. Go then and share your love among the dead. We'll have law here while I live. This woman's law is the law that sees these friends and enemies as just being part of a family. And this woman's law terrifies the creons it did 2500 years ago and it still does today so the other woman now comes in Esmini weeping do you admit your share in this thing I did it yes if she will let me say so I am as much to blame as she no says Antigone no that is not just you would not lend a hand and I refused your help in what I did Antigone says of Ismini, I love no friend whose love is only words. Antigone, one death is enough. How can I bear to live if you must die? Ask Creon. Boy, that is, that is a sneer. Ask Creon. Is not he the one you care for? Let me give you the Fitzgerald translation. How can I bear to live if you must die? Ask Creon. You're always hanging on his opinion. Ismini, you are laughing at me. Why, Antigone? Antigone, it's a joyless laughter, Ismini. There's a sense of great pathos here. Again, I think of Antigone being on the other side of this line. So much in Shakespeare does this too and saying, just come on over, in a way. She already said it, it's too late now. And it's meaning knowing that despite the appearances, that that's where life is, but still not able to make it. So in, in that sense, we can all identify with this meaning. You know what I mean? She knows, Creon doesn't, Creon's totally baffled by Antigone, but it's meaning knows that she's fully alive that Esmini knows that Antigone is fully alive and that she's not. I always compare this to the Christian materials just because it comes to my head that way, but it's, it's like Jesus saying, can you drink the cup that I'm about to drink? There is a, a pathos to this in that Esmini knows and the train's pulling out of the station and she has that desperate sense that it is. And pretty soon she's going to be left in the world of Creon her chance to live a life loyal to something bigger than that will be gone. There's a kind of apocalyptic sense here of the chance missed. You know, the play starts out with Antigone saying to Ismini, let's do it, and Ismini saying, I can't. So there was, there's like an invitation, but it needs to be, for dramatic purposes, it needs to be set up because 
we need to be able to see ourselves in all these characters. And, and I, I just have this tremendous feeling for his meaning. And it's, it's sobering to see how familiar his meaning is. Notice now, as Antigone says, you chose life. Life was your choice when mine was death. Although I warned you that it would be so, Antigone, a great line, your way seemed right to some, to others mine. One of the great uh, sources of spiritual depth in our world, our cultural history, is that, is that we had what we call, quote, Old Testament. That is to say, scriptures, which we consider to be divinely inspired, which we went back to to try to see a deeper meaning in. After we had read what we considered, we at the Christian community considered to be the last chapter, sort of like it's a mystery story. You read the last chapter and you can then you go back and read the in light of that to see where all the hints were dropped. I'm not saying that necessarily to espouse the Christian sensibility. I'm talking that what happens is the consciousness that you bring to the scripture, I consider this to be a scripture. If you're aware of the, the cultural destination that was reached later on. So when, for me, I'm convinced that the deepest mystery is that if you lose your life, you find it. Here you have Sophocles anticipating that, in a way, anticipating the full realization of this mystery. Well, this is being written at the same time as, well, I mean, within the same general time frame as the book of Job or the second Isaiah, where that kind of, the sense of this thing hasn't been finally worked out yet, this whole Isaiah suffering servant or the losing your life in order to find it hasn't been yet worked out, but it's on the agenda. Somehow. So I, I find this material here, your way seemed right to some to others' mind. No, no, you live. My heart was long since dead, so it was right for me to help the dead. And Creon just, at this point, erupts. He can't believe it. I do believe the creatures both are mad, one lately crazy, the other from her birth. This is so totally baffling to him. He came out there to sternly interrogate Antigone about why she committed the crime. And suddenly, he is sort of shoved off to the corner of the stage while Antigone interrogates Ismini for not committing it. And then they get in an argument about which one's going to be allowed to die. And he can't fathom what's going on. Crazy women. He says, crazy women. Those crazy women. Reminds me of that scene between Emerson Thoreau, you know, Thoreau's in jail for not paying his war taxes, and Emerson comes, he looks in there and says, Thoreau, what are you doing in jail? And Thoreau looks out and says, Emerson, what are you doing outside? So Creon says, take them away. They're just women. Take them into the kitchen on page one, essentially what he says on page 142, the proper place for women. Keep them inside. When they see death coming, they'll run. This is just all show. That shows how he writes that whole thing. And the chorus sings this thing about, oh my God, look at this, curse just keeps coming. The tree's last root crushed out, that's the Antigone 
and Ismini generation. By the pride of heart and the sin of presumptuous tongue. But notice the chorus on page 143, three lines down. This law is immutable. For mortals greatly to live is greatly to suffer. For mortals greatly to live is greatly to suffer. Uh, Charles Paul Siegel translates this, Nothing of magnitude comes into the life of mortals without suffering and disaster. There's, again, a, a Shakespeare connection. This is back on 141. Ismini said, You could not take or kill your own son's bride. And we're clued into the fact that Antigone and Hemon, who is Creon's son, are betrothed. And Creon, nice locker room comment, Oh, there are other fields for him to plow. But once again, this is an echo back to the Choral Ode, remember, where plowing fields was one of the proud accomplishments of civilization. So there's all, so many of those images in that Choral Ode are being perverted in the rest of the play. They're being turned into their opposite. It was just one of the sense of the, the great accomplishment of the mortals, or actually the great accomplishment of the men. And here it's been, the image is perverted so that the person is turned into a thing. So you start with turning, you start with treating the soul of Polynices as though it is the corpse of Polynices. And pretty soon you're treating the soul of everything as though it were a thing, every person as though it were a thing. And then you're living in an I-it universe. And this is an example of it here. Clearly in this play, Hemon and Antigone have a tremendous connection. Well, there is, perhaps it's, it's not so much to say that there was not, not romantic love. This is a technical point, really, but to say that there was not passionate love. You have to wait after the 11th century to get into passionate love. Uh, but there is tremendous love between these two people. But from Creon's perspective, you know, any old gal can produce an heir to the throne. <laughs> For mortals greatly to live is greatly to suffer. Or nothing of magnitude comes into the life of mortals without suffering and disaster. Lots could be said on this, of course, or, not, or, or lots of silence could be surrounding it. What I'd like to do with that is to, uh, is to just share an image, and I've shared it before, but a few months ago, somebody called me and said, Mother Teresa of Calcutta is on the radio. I turned it on. Mother Teresa of Calcutta said, uh, she's speaking in San Francisco, she said, uh, I see as much suffering in affluent America as I see in the squalor in Calcutta. Now, it was news to the affluent Americans that they were suffering. The people in Calcutta knew they were. But the affluent Americans didn't know they were. There was a sense in which she was saying, she also, in that same speech, said suffering is not, a, is not a curse, it's a gift. So when she looked at suffering, she has this kind of penetrating vision. She sees suffering and she sees that on the other side of suffering is a kind of transfiguration. If it's experienced in a certain way. And then she looks at fun and with that same penetrating vision sees that an awful lot of it is disguised for suffering. 
Oh, it makes me want to read a poem so bad. It's a poem I read the other night at this series they're doing out of St. Leo's. I'm like, it's just, it's a funny poem. It's having to do with, uh, for mortals, greatly live, greatly to suffer, and how we camouflage it on a typical somnambulant day. If, if Mother Teresa and I walked in shoulder to shoulder into a Macy's sale, she might see something there that I didn't see. She might see it and get very heavy of heart. And I might think, well, what's on sale? See what I mean? <laughs> when I say she would get heavy of heart, it is when you arrive at that place where you have that penetrating vision, you also arrive at a place where you know that we're all one. So that if you see suffering, you experience suffering. There isn't that detachment. So it's not merely a question of being able to spot it, because once you can spot it like that, you start to feel it. And all that suffering becomes your suffering. Well, to go from the sublime to the ridiculous here, I thought I'd just read this, because this is in a kind of a funny way. This is uh, Phyllis McGinley. She's commenting on a William Wordsworth poem. He wrote a sonnet which starts out, it is a beauteous evening, calm and free, and it's a beautiful kind of romantic thing about this uh, dear girl who's never had a deep thought in her life, but she's got the spirit within, and that's all that matters, kind of that thing. And McGinley knows that that's a nice, beautiful hope, but that if you operate on that assumption that, well, all that matters is that I have this little thing inside, if you operate on that assumption for about a hundred years, you come to a very dead-end place. So um, Wordsworth ends his sonnet by saying, You worshipest at the temple's inner shrine, God being with thee when we know it not. So this is Phyllis McGinley. He starts out his, It is a beauteous evening, calm and free. She starts out hers, It is a beauteous morning, calm and free. Like the day, the morning after. Waking up from that romantic hope, she's saying to Wordsworth, you know, this is what it's come to. It is a beauteous morning, calm and free. The fairways sparkle. Gleam the shaven grasses. Mirth fills the locker rooms, and hastily stewards fetch ice, fresh towels, and extra glasses. On terraces, the sandaled women freshen their lipstick, gather to gossip, poised and cool. And the shrill adolescent takes possession, plunging and splashing of the swimming pool. It is a beauteous morn, opinion grand. Nothing remains of last night's summer formal, save palms and streamers, and the wifely glance, directed with more watchfulness than normal, at listless mate, who tugs his necktie loose, moans, shuns the lights, and gulps tomato juice. Well, the ability to see in all that carefree, affluent, fun stuff, the ability to see in, in all of us the human need, the pitiable condition in a way, uh, and not see it in a, in a mocking way, but in a connected way. I want to finish this chorus because so we can, if we come back, we can deal with Hema. Roving ambition helps many a man to good and many it falsely lures to light desires. 
till failure trips them unawares and they fall in the fire that consumes them. Oh, that's a mantra. It's kind of long for a mantra, but boy, oh boy. Roving ambition helps many a man to good, and many it, lure, it falsely lures to light desire. Till failure trips them unawares, and they fall in the fire that consumes them. Remember now, the, the other coral ode was talking about, look at it. Look at all we've done. We tamed the animals, and we plowed the ground, and we charted the seas, and we built the cities. and Look at all this. And now they're saying that same impulse, which can give rise to genuine greatness, the impulse to come fully alive can bring us fully alive. Or it can get derailed in an L.L. Bean catalog. It's the same impulse. <laughs> I love the way Fitzgerald translates those first two lines. The straying dreams of men may bring them ghosts of joy. So the chorus is begin, beginning to sober a little bit in terms of that great impulse they were celebrating before. Well, the, um, after touching on this chorus on 143, we get into the Creon and Hemon encounter and it's a kind of circling back, a reconsideration of, of the same kind of clash between sensibilities, uh, but from, with a slightly different nuance to it. Ahimon comes in and Creon, no angry words, I hope, still friends in spite of everything, my son. Uh, kind of placating him, right? And then Ahimon, listen to this. I am your son, sir. By your wise decision, my life is ruled. And them I shall always obey. I cannot value any marriage tie above your own good guidance. And you think, oh, what a wimp. The fact is that Heman is another kind of hero. He's the archetype, in a way, of the selfless diplomat. He's not going to come in and make a fiery rhetorical speech. He's not going to come in with histrionics and flourish and all that. You can tell he's, he's been collecting his thoughts. <laughs> Comes in and he starts off talking this way and you think, well... But then notice how it develops. It's also a, an illumination of Creon to, a little further. Rightly said, your father's will should have your heart's first place. Only for this do fathers pray for sons, obedient, loyal ready to strike down their father's foes and love their father's friends. Oh, God, it's the beat goes on, you know. It's Hamlet. If Next week, if there's time, I'd like to do a little comparison between Antigone and Hamlet. It's the crux of that issue in a way. Hamlet's father, the ghost of his father comes and says, I want you to carry on this distinction between friends and enemies. Revenge my death. Take this whole thing into the next generation and keep it going. And here's this Creon saying the same thing. And that this is what really matters. Is to be obedient, loyal, ready to strike down their father's foes and love their father's friends. This is what we raise these guys to do. 
This is the boot camp that starts in the, in the nursery. To be the father of unprofitable sons is to be the father of sorrows, a laughing stock to all one's enemies. Do not be fooled, my son, by lust and the wiles of a woman. So that's the juxtaposition. Stay with the father's division of good, good and bad, friends and enemies. Stay with that or wander over into that other realm where the woman makes imprecise distinctions between friends and enemies. Treats them all as though they're part of some goddamn family. So that's what you've got to watch out for. Next page. This girl's an enemy, a traitor to the state, he said. So she must die. Well may she pray to Zeus, the god of family love. How, if I tolerate a traitor at home, shall I rule abroad? You must be loyal to the, to the tyrant if he's right or wrong. And then you get, you get his problem here, about a little below half page. There is no more deadly peril than disobedience. States are devoured by it. Homes laid in ruins, armies defeated, victory turned to rout. And Sophocles is essentially giving uh, Creon his due here, you know. He wants to preserve some kind of order, and he, because of his own psychological limitations, he thinks that the only way to do that is to clamp down. He says, my God, if we allow disobedience, Antigone is not being disobedient. She's being obedient. He's missed the point. Antigone could say, I didn't come to break the law, I came to fulfill it. And again, he's missing the point. Therefore, I hold to the law and will never betray it, the law, parentheses, of the state, and will never betray it, least of all for a woman. Better be beaten, if need be, by a man than let a woman get the better of it. All this is going to come back to haunting. Everything is going to come back to haunt. And the chorus is the real wimp here. To me, as far as an old man can tell, it seems your majesty has spoken well. And notice that at the bottom of the next, they really play it safe. Here comes the diplomat's skill. See, that's the beautiful thing. Hemon is like Ismini. There's a quality about him that you can really connect with. He knows where his heart is, and his heart is with Antigone, and he will prove it later in a very dramatic way. Father, man's wisdom is the gift of heaven. The greatest gift of all, I neither am nor wish to be clever enough to prove you wrong. So he, he knows that if he sets up this tennis match with Creon, Creon will just be in his element, so he's trying to ease into this. Thing. The walled men might not think the same as you do. Nevertheless, I have to be your watchdog to what others say and what they do and what they find to praise and what to blame. Your frown is sufficient silencer of any word that is not for your ears. But I hear whispers spoken in the dark. On every side I hear voices of pity for this poor girl doomed to the cruelest death. They think she ought to be crowned. Think if they on down the page. Think if there cannot be some other way. Surely to 
to think your own, the only wisdom, and yours the only word, the only will, betrays a shallow spirit, an empty heart. He's getting to the point now. So he's softened him up. And a little metaphor might help. It is no weakness for the wisest man to learn when he is wrong, no one to yield. So in the margin of a flooded river, trees bending to the torrent live unbroken, while those that strain against it are snapped off. A sailor has to go, has to tack and slacken sheets before the gale to find or find himself capsized. Great image. It's also, by the way, Dante's image. What lives in this buffeting must bend. So he's sort of laid it out there, and then the chorus, classic. There's something to be said, my lord, for his point of view, but you notice the next phrase, and for yours as well. There's much to be said on both sides. <laughs> now, interesting now to compare the chorus to Antigone. Antigone says, they're both brothers. And the chorus says, well, there's something to be said on both sides. They're as far away as can be. But they have a kind of, the chorus has a faint, is a faint parody on the world that Antigone is saying. To recognize that there's a little bit of good and a little bit of bad and a little bit of good and a little, there's a little, makes a little sense on both sides. It's a kind of, it's a groping towards it. So Creon then, he's already, he's already shown and he'll show again, well, it, the main theme is his fear of the woman and, and what might happen to his little cosmos if the feminine spirit ever breaks into it. And that's what he's steeled against. But also, he's too proud to imagine that somebody younger than he could say something wiser than he knows. So that's the big, he can't, you know, how am I to take lessons from this kid? And Heman said, no lesson you need be ashamed of. It isn't a question of age, but of right and wrong. Would you call it right to admire an act of disobedience? Not if the act were also dishonorable. See, it's very, he's working this thing perfectly. The people of Thebes think not. The people, and this is where Creon crosses the line. Irretrievably steps over into the role of the tyrant, which the, which the 5th century Greeks hated. That was the great fear that there would there would be that these this pride would lead to tyranny again. The people of Thebes. Since when do I take my orders from the people of Thebes? Isn't that rather a childish thing to say? Notice who's the father and who's the son here. I am king and responsible only to myself. A one man state? What sort of state is that? Why does not every state belong to its ruler? You'd make an excellent. You'd be an excellent king on a desert island. <laughs> of course, if you're on the woman's side, you see, any criticism becomes a, a partisan thing. Okay, well, I know how to. I know which pigeonhole to put you in. You're going to sit there and talk to me that way. You must be on the woman's side. Well, he is, but that's not the point. What sort of and further down? What sort of respect tramples on all that is holy? Despicable coward, no more will than a woman. 
the incredible fear of the feminine. This hasn't changed in 2,500 years, by the way. It hasn't changed. Hemon is coming in to save the woman he loved. But in another sense, he's coming in to save, spiritually save the father he loved. So it is his father. And then his final statement is, well, if she dies, she does not die alone. So despite this nice, well-thought-out, understated little dialogue he's having with his father, Creon, it's like Clark Kent, you know. And he goes into a phone booth, he's going to come out. He's, he's a potent young man. He's willing to go to his death. So he doesn't come out with a great flourish, but he's there, boy. And uh, he lets his he lets Creon know how deep his commitment is, and then we'll see we'll see where that leads in next week's material. Creon says, "Well, then bring out bring her out. We'll just kill her right here, right in front of this young kid." And Hemon says, "No, I that's not something I'm going to see," and he leaves. And then Creon, this is that's all of the material. Really. Creon describes a sort of cowardly way to do this in order to avoid the curse that would be on it. You see, put her in a desert place, uh, wall her up in a cave with just enough food to acquit ourselves of the blood guiltiness. Real cowardly. Up at the top of one forty-seven. Don't toady me, boy. Keep that for your lady love because we've now it's just become such an anachronism we have to get beyond it so we might as well go ahead and call a spade a spade so much of that kind of heroism that is fighting the father's foes and loving the father's friends and that kind of stuff is rooted in fear of the feminine I used to think of it as muscles and mother they disguise each other, muscles and mother. So that the the irony is that it turns out to be, the intimidation is don't be a sissy. And then if you define sissy as somebody who runs away from what they're most afraid of, then you have these great, big, brave, bellicose sissy running from essentially from the feminine. Well, interesting thing about... Hemon to me is is the selflessness of his way of approaching this thing. So the the characterization in this play is so rich. It's Meany and Hemon and Antigone and Creon. 